Let's open our Bibles, please, to the book of Exodus, the 20th chapter. We've been giving you the highlights and high points in the book of Exodus, as we did previously in the book of Genesis. And by the way, it won't be long till we'll be getting into the book of Leviticus, which will be divided up a little easier in some ways, because uh, you have the offerings and the priesthood and various feasts and things that you can divide up in and get more concise than the book of Exodus. It's uh, longer. The book of Exodus has uh, 40 chapters, and Genesis had 50 chapters. And then we get into Leviticus, and we'll have a different uh, approach to that uh, book. But uh, so far, I'd like to bring you up today so you'll know. I, I would like for people, by the time we get through with our lessons in Exodus, to have a, a grip of it. And uh, if you'll remember, I'll give you these chapter titles that I have, and this will kind of get everything before your eyes. I, I have reviewed it several times. First of all, in chapter 1, you have Israel in bondage. Israel in bondage. And by the way, if you'd like these notes after the service is over, I'll be glad and you can copy them down easier if you don't have time when I read them off. And then the birth of a deliverer, that is in chapter 2, that was Moses. In chapter 3, the call and commission of Moses... And in chapter 4, the credentials. God gave him some credentials so that he would be able to be identified as their leader. And in chapters 5 and 6, you have a conflict that begins between Pharaoh and Moses. And then chapters 7 through 11, this is an important section. Chapters 7 through 11 have to do with ten judgments and four compromises. 7 through 11, 10 judgments and 4 compromises. The 10 judgments are the judgments that God brought upon uh, Pharaoh and the Egyptians by the hand of Moses, his deliverer. And the 4 attempts to compromise, Pharaoh tried to make 4 different attempts to compromise with Moses on the deliverance of the children of Israel, which were not acceptable, of course. God is not a God of compromise. And so Moses wouldn't be a leader of compromise. And uh, Pharaoh had to meet God's conditions and let the children of Israel go. And then we have in chapter 12, the Passover. And in chapter 13, the sanctification of the firstborn. And in chapter 14, we have them crossing the Red Sea. In chapter 15, the song of redemption. In chapter 16, manna. In chapter 17, water from the rock and war with Amalek. Two things, water from the rock and war with Amalek. In chapter 18, we have some situation where Jethro, I'll give you a title in a moment, but Jethro uh, suggested to Moses to divide up the leadership among the elders. And really, it's a millennial scene. But on the other hand, we find that the powers of government were distributed and Moses took the suggestion of Jethro, his father-in-law, which is not always wise to take the advice of kinfolks in spiritual matters. And then we find in chapter 19, Israel comes to Sinai. And right now where we are tonight, chapter 20, the giving of the law. Now then, uh, we might give you the next title. Uh, chapters 21 through 23 you have diverse laws for God's people, and that's the section we'll be in, chapter 20 and then through 23 and 24 tonight. And 24 is Moses in the mountain. Then we'll get into the, 
the 25th chapter will have to do with materials for the tabernacle. And basically from chapters 25 through 40, you have uh, that which concerns the, the tabernacle. First of all, you have, you have two different approaches. You have uh, from man to God and then from God to man. So you have two different approaches of the same thing as far as the tabernacle is concerned. And we have just recently taught the tabernacle, so we, we'll just give you a review of that. And I'll give you some points that you can really uh, use to sum up the balance of the book by, by these main points of the teachings of the tabernacle when we get to the 25th chapter. And then we'll get into the book of Leviticus. Now, if you want these titles after the service is over, I can go uh, over them with you again. Anyone would like to have some more uh, words about that, well, you just let us know. But uh, in our last lesson, we're in the 20th chapter, and we got down to verse, uh, 11, I mean, verse 12, 11 and 12. And the last commandment that we spoke of that God gave was in verse 12. Chapter 20, verse 12. And it says, Honor thy father and thy mother, that thy days may be long upon the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. And we told you last week how that God said in the New Testament, this is the first commandment with promise. The promise of long life. And we discussed that in our last lesson. Uh, in giving the Ten Commandments, remember the first four show uh, man's relationship to God. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make in thee any graven image. Uh, uh, let's see. Thou shalt, uh, what is it? Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in, in vain, and then remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Those are the first four. And then the last six have to do with man's relationship to man. And those are the ones we're in right at the, this moment. And verse 13 says, Thou shalt not kill. This, this means murder. This means malice. It means hatred. It means personal revenge. It does not mean going to war for your country to fight for freedom. You know, a lot of people have come under this heading and say, well, I'm a conscientious objector and they won't fight for their freedom for the nation, the country. Well, all through the Old Testament, God's people fought for their rights and fought for, for their liberties and fought for freedom and fought for the things that God told them to fight for. So why should it be any different today for Christians to uh, take a stand and be willing to, to fight physically for the things that are right? And uh, so uh, I don't think it's really right to hide behind that, but if someone has uh, objection to going to war, well, that's their business. I'm not going to quibble with them over it, but I don't think the Bible is talking about here uh, not going out to fight for your country. I was in the service in World War II. When in age of 17, Brother Randy's been in the service, various others of you at various times, and Brother Clark, and, and uh, others have served in various ways, and uh, some were not the right age to go in, but they were willing, I'm sure. And we have many honorable men that, that try to defend their country, and I believe all of us would today, everyone here that I know of, would be willing to take their stand to defend their country and the freedoms that we have. It says, Thou shalt not commit adultery. Look at that. Thou shalt not commit adultery. You know, God's laws have not changed concerning this. In fact, in verse 16, it says, I mean, verse 17, Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, nor his manservant, nor his maidservant, nor his ox, nor his ass, nor anything that is thy neighbor's. Paul said in the New Testament, let me read in the Romans chapter 7, if you will. 
Romans chapter 7, in verse uh, 7, Paul says, What shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. Nay, I had not known sin but by the law. For I had not known lust. Now listen. I had not known lust except the law had said, Thou shalt not covet. You see, God's law is to reveal to us that we are sinners. God, when He gave this law, knew the children of Israel were going to sin and come short of, of this law. And all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And you and I have broken every law of God. We may not like to admit it, but we have. We're sinners. And we've broken God's law. And God uh, gave this law to prove Israel, to see if they would be willing to follow Him by faith. And put their faith and trust in Him. When someone says they want to live by the law, look at this. Verse 14, Thou shalt not commit adultery. Hold your place where we're studying. I was going to rush through this, but I, I get tied up in these thoughts because I find so much that we need to deal with. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Let me show you something. In, look in the book of Leviticus, chapter 20. Leviticus, I believe, is chapter 20 and verse 10. And the man that committeth adultery, look at this, with another man's wife, even that even he that committeth adultery with his neighbor's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be what? Put to death. You know, God's people, have you ever heard people today, I just want to live by the Ten Commandments. Well, if they wanted to live by the Ten Commandments, you'll find people being killed on every hand because in this day of... Our society people have forgotten what it is to be faithful to one uh, to husband or wife. They have no respect whatsoever for marriage vows and for the sanctity of marriage. In fact, some of them even trade husbands and wives. And we see that on various of these talk programs that we have, all open, free love, and everything that they talk about. Listen, we don't need any encouragement in that direction. That's why God put some guidelines here. If, you know, if man was not a sinner, God wouldn't have had to put some guidelines as to how we deal with, with other people. But He had to put these guidelines down here because we're so capable of falling into sin and breaking those things which are holy and right that God says, Thou shalt not. And He puts it down on one hand and on the other. He says, Thou shalt not steal. The things that belong to someone else are not yours. And when you take them, you're stealing. It says, Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. That means make up a falsehood, or even convey one, or even repeat one. Perpetuate those falsehoods. Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. Thou shalt not covet, and we read this one, thy neighbor's house, thy, thy neighbor's wife, manservant, maidservant, ox, nor his ass, nor anything that is thy neighbor's. Now look what effect this law. Here's the Ten Commandments. We said earlier that the, that the law was given. Let me give you this again. The law is given in three divisions. We just read the first one, the commandments. The second division is the judgments in chapters 21 through 23. And then 25 through 31 is, are the ordinances. So you might say when we talk about the law, basically, usually we talk about the Ten Commandments. Right? Right? But then, we have all of these judgments that 
develop the various minute details of those Ten Commandments. They all hinge on those Ten Commandments. Jesus sums them up in the New Testament with two. Love for God and love for your neighbor, right? And he says, on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. But we find that, that here Moses goes into detail to show that these various laws, these various commandments... Uh, have to be turned into judgments or statutes or the way that man has to be dealt with, and we'll get into those in just a moment. So what? when you're talking about the law, what do you have? You have the Ten Commandments, you have the judgments, and then you have the ordinances in order to respect uh, the law. And these are the things that are developed here in the book of Exodus. Now, if you can get a grip of that, you'll think of the law in more than just the terms of the Ten Commandments. And we'll get into that in the next chapter. Chapter 21, we'll deal with it at length. But I want you to notice verse 18, what happened after the law was given. It says in verse 18, And all the people saw the thunderings and the lightnings and the noise of the trumpet. By the way, who was blowing this trumpet? God was blowing this trumpet. Look back in the chapter uh, 19 and verse 16. And it came to pass on the third day in the morning that there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud upon the mountain and the voice of the trumpet exceeding loud. The voice of the trumpet. doesn't say Moses went up there and blew the trumpet or Joshua or someone else. The, thundering, the thunderings and lightnings were from God and so was the voice of the trumpet. It was like a trumpet sound. Just like over in the book of Revelation, his voice was as the sound of a trumpet. And here, in many instances, Israel was told to have their leaders to blow the trumpets. But in this instance, in the giving of the law, God was making the noise. And God was setting this mountain on fire and the smoke of the mountain and the thunderings and the lightnings, showing that it was God's presence, the divine presence of God. And all the people, look, chapter 20, verse 18, all the people saw the thunderings and the lightnings and the noise of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, what? They removed and stood afar off. What does the law do? Bring people near to God? No. Sets them afar off. Because they're sinners, right? The Bible says in Romans chapter 8, for what the law could not do. Now, you, you get those words. It could not do in that it was weak through the flesh. God sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, that means a sacrifice for sin, condemn sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. So someone says, uh, Preacher, have you kept the law? Or ask you as a Christian, have you kept the law? I haven't kept it, but Jesus kept it. And He's told me that I'm free from this condemnation, and now I'm to walk after Him in a spiritual way. And it's not my standard, though I know if I break the law, I'm sinning against God, because uh, sin is also a transgression of the law. Right? But I know this, that my standard is simply this, to follow the Lord and ask for forgiveness, and put Christ's righteousness and His keeping of the law before God to intercede for me instead of my own life to be acceptable in its own uh, merits because my merits are not good enough. Man is a sinner. And you know, we have to realize that the people stood afar off. Verse 19 says, And they said unto Moses, Speak thou with us. Now look, speak thou with us, but we and we will hear. But let not God speak with us lest we die. 
You see that? In other words, the people realize their need of a mediator and they desire a mediator. They says, Moses, you can speak to us, but don't let God speak to us. Why? Lest we die. They knew they were sin, sinners and had fallen short. In verse 20, And Moses said unto the people, Fear not. Now look, for God has come to prove you. That's very important. Some of these statements, when I emphasize them, if you want to take your pen, just underline, underline in verse 18, they removed and stood afar off. In verse 19, let not God speak with us. Uh, verse 20, for God has come to prove you. He's going to see if you can keep him, His word, if you're willing to follow Him, and that His fear may be before your faces that you sin not. And the people, what? Stood afar off, and Moses drew near under the thick darkness where God was. You see, there's only one that's able to draw near. It didn't mean Moses wasn't a sinner, but he was acting as mediator. And we, he's typical of Christ who is our advocate with the Father and the one and only uh, mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. We cannot go to God directly except through Christ. Now, we go to God in prayer because Christ has already made it possible that, he, that we can draw near with, a, full, uh, with a, a true heart and full assurance of faith through His atoning blood. And because He is our great high priest. And because He has bidden us to come boldly to the throne of grace. And because He's opened up the way for us to do it. Otherwise, we could not. You hear people, you know, it amazes me, the general thoughts of, of the, we call this a Christian nation. And we look around in society today and you'll find some fella that, boy, he's just a pretty good Christian, you know. Doesn't go to church. Uh, but every time he needs the Lord, he says, yeah, I pray. But he doesn't know on what basis he's praying. He doesn't realize that his prayer doesn't get to God unless it comes through Jesus Christ. It may all be all kinds of words, but God says there's only one way of approach, and that's through what Christ has done. And you know, you have all kinds of religious people, uh, so-called professed Christian people, that are living ungodly and unholy lives, and yet every time they get in trouble, they say, I called on God. Well, so what? The heathen called on God too, didn't they? Pharaoh called on Moses to remove the plagues. Uh, you know, a lot of people call on God. But that, that's not the whole, whole uh, sum and total of the matter. In the New Testament, you look in Hebrews, and I may be getting off of my subject. I usually do. But <laughs> Hebrews chapter 10 I want you to read verse 19. It says, Having therefore, brethren, boldness. Now look. To enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. If you're going to enter into the holiest, into the presence of God, you've got to go through the blood of Jesus. And a lot of these folks that's telling you they call on God, they don't accept the fact that they're the necessity of the blood of Jesus to enter into the presence of God. Look, by a new and living way, the word new means ever fresh, just as fresh as it was in the day in which Jesus died on the cross, and living way, which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh, and having an high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience, that's the application of the blood of Christ, to our own hearts, and our bodies washed with pure water. And there's so much ex exposition. Uh, couldn't expound it in one night, but what I'm trying to say is the basis of our 
uh, right or merit for us to draw near to God is, a, is upon the, through the name of Christ and through the merits of Christ. And a lot of people just claim to call on God out of this, the clear blue. And as the old saying, their prayers get just about as high as their head because God is not going to accept just every prayer. Uh, the Bible says, He that turneth away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer is an abomination to the sight of God. So what does it mean? A man goes on in his sinful ways, in wicked ways, turns away his ear from hearing the Word of God, and says, I don't need that. And then every once in a while, occasionally calls upon God. God says his prayer is abomination. He doesn't even hear it. God won't have anything to do with that. So it amazes me at the people in this world that you talk to about the Lord, and the first thing you know, oh yeah, I pray. I look up to God and I pray, you know. You find them every day. Well, that's well and good, but I'd like for them to have a basis and a reason and some merit attached to their prayer, and then I believe God would hear it and answer it. And you know, He's not always going to do what we think He ought to do either. And just because you say, uh, you know, there was a lady on a program the other night I was listening to that was one of these uh, name it and claim it. You know, you just name it and God's going to do it. And when it didn't happen one time, it just destroyed her. She didn't believe she had any faith. She believed God didn't love her and all kinds of things. And she started reading the Bible and found out that God can do as He pleases. You know, God is sovereign. We don't have to jerk Him around one way or another. And if He sees fit to answer our prayer, He will. But you don't get everything you name. And you know, He says, if we ask anything according to His what? Will He heareth us? And we know that if He hear us, we have the petition that we desire of Him. But that's according to His will. And everything that we ask or think of with our little old frail minds is not according to His will. And so we just think uh, that it's just like uh, asking Santa Claus for something, you know. A lot of people are under the impression just anything I want to name, uh, put a letter in the mail and He'll bring it. He's not going to do that. So we better, don't let it destroy your faith. And that's come, that comes from some of these faith healers on the radio and television. They say, oh yeah, the reason you're sick is because you haven't claimed God's promise for your, for your health. And a lot of those people are sicker than I am, and I've got my problems. <laughs> you know, I hear them talking about their healing, and they turn around and they find out they're just as bad off as I am. And I just trust God day by day. I'm glad He gives me strength and health and life. And I have a lot of aches and pains, but you know He gives me strength to bear them. Some days they're worse than others, but I trust it with God. And I don't believe just because uh, He doesn't make me 100% whole and I have to wear glasses or I have some, some frailties and uh, uh, problems, well, that, uh, that He doesn't hear and answer my prayers. I believe He does. And I believe He answers yours. But don't count it on the basis of whether or not everything that you desire is answered. Anyway, let's go on with this. Uh, where was I? Down to verse uh, 21. And the people stood afar off, and Moses drew near into the thick darkness where God was. And the Lord said unto Moses, Thus thou shalt say unto the children of Israel, Ye have seen that I have talked with you from heaven. Now look. Ye shall not make with me gods of silver, Neither shall you make unto you gods of gold. Now, in verse 24 through 26 shows that they needed a way of approach, a new way. He had given them the law. Now, he says, an altar of earth thou shalt make unto me. They're going to have to approach God instead of on the basis of their works and keeping the law. 
They're going to have to approach God by what? Sacrifice. Which is the only way of approach to God. Do you approach God in this way and say, God, you've given me your Ten Commandments and I've kept them all, therefore I'm coming into your presence and I'm holy and I'm good and I'm righteous. I've kept every law. No. You come to God and say, God, I've broken your law and I accept the sacrifice of Christ that paid the penalty due my sins and my transgressions of the law and sin is a transgression of the law and I come through His merits and I want you to accept me through what Jesus has done and through the sacrifice. God says, here's a new way. Look, verse 24, An altar of earth thou shalt make unto me, and shalt sacrifice thereon <coughs> two kinds of offerings, thy burnt offerings and thy peace offerings. Burnt offerings means that which is holy, burnt, and acceptable to God. Peace offerings is a result of having made peace with God and, uh, and on the basis of sacrifice. Now, when we get into Leviticus, we'll have all kinds of offerings. The sin offering, the trespass offering, the burnt offering, the peace offering, and various other offerings, the meat offering. And we'll get into those offerings, which a lot of people, my wife says, I never did understand those offerings. And uh, they are hard to understand unless you get a grip on them. But anyway, every one of them are typical of some aspect. Let me give you this secret before we get there. Every one of them are typical of some aspect of the death of Christ. What he did on the cross. Every one of them referred to Jesus. And instead of all these various ones, he fulfilled them all in one sacrifice when he offered himself. He was a whole burnt offering to God. Completely acceptable to God. He was an offering and sacrifice for our sins. He made a, a trespass offering and provided for our future sins, our trespasses. He made peace with God through the blood of his cross. Colossians 1.20 And so everything... And the meat offering, wholly dedicated to God in his life. And so you, uh, a bloodless sacrifice in that instance. And so we find that um, uh, you'll get into those in the book of Leviticus. Verse 24, you have it, look at it. An altar of earth thou shalt make unto me, and shalt sacrifice thereon thy burnt offerings and thy peace offerings, thy sheep and thine oxen in all places where... Look. In all places where I record my name, I will come unto thee and I will bless thee. He says, I want you to come to the place where I name, where I record my name. Let me turn you to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter, <clears throat> let's see if I can find it, chapter 12 of Deuteronomy. A lot of people say, well, I'll worship God here on the other side of the mountain. I'll go down by the creek or down by the valley. If God names the creek, go down by the creek. If He names the mountain, go up on the mountain. If He names the valley, go down in the valley. But you better be sure that that's where God says, there's where my name is. Or He's not meeting there with you. Now, of course, in the New Testament, we know that the individual believer is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And we can call upon God individually wherever we are. But... Collectively, as far as the people gathering together and assembling, the local New Testament church is where He has placed His name. When we're assembled together, we're a church. When, when we're disassembled, we're not assembled. A call, assembly is a called out assembly. The church is a called out assembly. This building's not the church. We call it the church house. And the, the church of Christ have a good point when they say the church of Christ meets here, you know. 
They know that the building is the place where they meet. Uh, we Baptists, we believe we're a local New Testament church. So we as a Baptist church, we meet here in this place. So the building is the building, but we're the church. The people are the church. Called out assembly. <clears throat> so don't just because someone doesn't believe exactly like uh, we do, it doesn't mean you can't give them respect for their uh, parts that are right, you know, and give them due respect. Old Dr. Lakin says just because some person feeds their child their baby in the mouth, don't just to be different start poking it in their ear. That's the way some of us are. We're so hard-headed just to be different from everybody else. We've got to try it a different way. Now then, chapter 12 of Deuteronomy, it says, did we get back to chapter 12? Okay. It says, These are the statutes and judgments which ye shall observe to do in the land which the Lord thy God, Lord God of thy fathers giveth thee to possess it all the days that ye live upon the earth. Ye shall utterly destroy all the places wherein the nations which ye shall uh, possess, serve their gods upon the high mountains and upon the hills and under every green tree. It says, destroy those places when you come into the land. Verse 3 says, <clears throat> And you shall overthrow their altars and break down... <clears throat> look at this. And break down their graven images, the graven images of their gods, and destroy <clears throat> the names of them out of that place. You shall not do so unto the Lord your God. Now, verse 5. But unto the place which the Lord your God shall choose, out of all your tribes to put his name there, even unto his habitation shall you seek, and thither thou shalt come. And thither, in other words, this place, ye shall bring your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, <clears throat> and your tithes, and your heave offerings of your hand, and your vows, and your free will offerings, and the firstling of your herds, and of your flocks. And there, where? This place. And there you shall eat before the Lord your God, and ye shall rejoice in all uh, that ye put your hand unto, ye and your households, wherein the Lord uh, thy God hath blessed thee. Ye shall not do, now look, here's what ye shall not do. Ye shall not do <coughs> after all the things that uh, we do here this day, every man whatsoever is writing in his own eyes. You know, see, a lot of people, in the book of Judges, it says, in those days there was no king in Israel, and every man did that which was right in his own eyes, which is always wrong. You know, if you just do what's right in your own eyes, you better do what's right in God's eyes. And he says, you shall not do whatsoever, every man whatsoever is right in his own eyes, for ye are not as yet come to the rest of the inheritance which the Lord your God giveth you. But when you shall go over this Jordan, over Jordan, and dwell in the land which the Lord your God giveth you to inherit, and when He giveth you rest from all your enemies round about, so that ye dwell in safety, then there shall be a place. Look, from verse eleven on, I want you to get this. Then there shall be a place which the Lord your God shall choose to cause His name to dwell there. Thither shall you bring all that I command you your burnt offerings and your sacrifices and your tithes and your heave offerings of your hand and all your choice of vows which ye vow unto the Lord. And ye shall rejoice before the Lord your God, ye and your sons and your daughters and your men, ser uh, men servants and your maid servants <clears throat> and the Levite that is within your gates for as much as he hath no part nor inheritance with you. Now then, verses 13 and 14, I believe, are very important. 
Look at them. If you were going to key two verses in, of all that I've read, these are the two I want you to stick with. It says, Take heed to thyself that thou offer not thy burnt offerings in every place that thou seest. You ever seen people? I can just worship God anywhere I want to. I said a moment ago, individually, as a Christian, you can pray to God anywhere. You know that. That, we, that the throne of grace is open to us both day and night. But when we come together, when you're assembled together, we're to assemble in the local New Testament church where we can see one another, when we, where we can shake hands with one another, where we can hear each other's prayers, when we can sing together, when we can pray together, when we can bear one another's burdens together, and we know that we're not worshiping someone that's supposed to be sitting in that pew. They're sitting in that pew. Or worshiping with them, I should say. That's what I meant. Worshiping with someone that's sitting in that pew. You know that person is present. Have you ever heard people say, my spirit's there? Well, that's good. I'm glad that you're with us in spirit, but I'd rather you be with us in body, soul, and spirit. You know the whole person. Completely and totally. Because, see, I can't see your spirit. Jesus said, touch me and handle me and see. He says, take hold of me. For a spirit have not flesh and bone as you see me have. He says, I'm the real person that was crucified. And I've risen again. And he said, he did eat and drink with the disciples. He says, I'm here. This is me. And that's what we want you to be. Your place will be empty. And then it says in verse 14, But in the place which the Lord shall choose in one of the... Of thy tribes, there thou shalt offer thy burnt offerings, and there thou shalt do all that I command thee. So he says, don't do this and say that you're going to just worship God anywhere. Now, if we believe in the local New Testament church, then we believe that it's right for Christians to assemble together as a church in order to worship God together. And I believe that it has its at least... A picture and reference or application or type of pointing to a local New Testament church. If this was true for Israel of old, that they were to gather together as a nation and as a people to worship God, and God says, don't do it just anywhere, but you go to the place where I put my name there, then certainly it's right for the New Testament church to assemble together, and he's put his name in that local New Testament church. Jesus' last word was concerning local New Testament churches. Did you know that? Concerning the church? He said to John, Under the church of Ephesus, write. That was a local church, right? And then the church of Smyrna, write. And he told him what to write. These various seven letters to these seven churches. And by the way, they're typical because there were hundreds of churches scattered out through Asia Minor. And he picked seven churches, local churches, and he says, You write these seven letters to these churches. I heard an evangelist one time over at Alamogordo, they was having a, a meeting over there, and I just went over, and my sister and some more people, we went over there to hear him. And he said, God's through with the church. Fellow, where'd you get that? Jesus said, the church, uh, he says, upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. There'll never be a time until the church is taken on to be with the Lord that he's going to be through with the church. And he's telling about all this modern evangelism that he was tied up in. He says, now you've got to go out individually. And he's taking these various evangelistic associations and he's working through them instead of the church. Don't you ever believe that stuff? 
Jesus gave the commission to the church. The church is established, and it's going to be here. And, and Paul told Timothy, he says, it's a pillar and ground of the truth. And he says, uh, Jesus said it'll abide, it'll remain here. And the last letters he wrote to tell them how to live even in days of apostasy were given in the book of Revelation. I'm not worried about the church. You know why I'm not worried about it? Because Jesus established it, and he's the foundation of it. And it's going to be here. You say, well, the church is a mystical body. I don't think so. The church is a local body. And everyone is like another one around the world. We say, we use the term, uh, say, the American high school. Do we mean that there's one high school in all of America, somewhere in the central location, and everybody that's going to high school has to go to, to the middle of the nation to go to high school? No, it's a, it's a general term, isn't it? And there's a high school in Capitan, there's a high school in Riodosan, there's one in Almagordan, there's one in Roswell, and they're all over the Albuquerque, and everywhere you go, there's a high school. But it's American high school, listen. And so Jesus said, Upon this rock I will build my church. Did he mean there's just going to be one place or one church somewhere in the world where he's going to build that church, and everyone would have to go all around the world to that one location? No. He's speaking of the fact that there, there will be local churches, and he proved it in the book of Revelation to point out these various letters to the various existing churches. And he says, John, you write these letters to these churches so they'll know what I'm talking about. Well, I didn't get as far as I wanted to, but I'm, I'm getting some of the things that I want you to hear anyway. Okay, look at verse 24. You have chapter 20, verse 24. It says in verse 25 now, Look, and if thou wilt make me an altar of stone, thou shalt not build it of hewn stone. Underline this. For if thou lift up thy tool upon it, thou hast polluted it. You see, man cannot attach his works to God's altar. See, a lot of times we say, well, we can, we can fix things. But salvation is not of works. Uh, Christ did not need our help when He gave Himself on the cross. And he, He's really the one that was laid upon that altar of Calvary, of sacrifice. And any time man tries to add to the work that Jesus did, in the sacrifice that Jesus did, He's polluting it. And you know that's the danger today. People say, yes, I'm saved by grace, but... That but's already done some harm. Right? I'm saved by grace, but I've got to do this, or I've got to do that. If I don't do this, all you're doing is polluting that salvation by grace. It's totally and completely of grace. Now, it doesn't mean we don't have works. Uh, Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. It says, For by grace are you saved through faith. Right? And that not of yourself, it is a gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. That's salvation. Then it says, we are, For we are His workmanship. We're a new creature. We are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works. Now listen. Which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. So as Christians, the works are the result of the salvation by grace. But they're not the root of it. They're the fruit of it. And that's where we need to get things straight. So, you're saved by grace, friend. If you're saved at all, it's by grace. But then... There's a lot of responsibilities and there's a lot of things Christians are to do. 
And we're to do the works as we're led and guided by God's Word and by His Holy Spirit. And there are many things that we fall short as far as our sins of omission. But on the other hand, that doesn't mean that we're any more saved or any less saved. And a lot of people have based it on that. You know, if salvation were any bit of works, then the fellow that did more works, he'd be more saved, right? And the fellow that did little works, he'd be less saved. Or if the fellow did no works, he wouldn't be saved, right? So it's of grace that it might be by faith. So it's by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And there's one thing that I believe, and that's salvation by grace through faith. Now then, uh, verse 26, look here. Neither shalt thou go up by steps unto mine altar, that thy nakedness be not discovered. It's not of our own elevation that we approach God. God says you don't have to go up step by step to my altar. He says you, you won't lift your hand upon it to try to... He says when you do that, you pollute it. Or if you try to approach it by your own elevation and make steps and say, well, I'll make this step to go to God and, and approach God by steps, it says, lest thy nakedness be discovered. you know what? It's talking about the fact that you and I cannot approach God on our own merits. That's simply what it amounts to. We cannot come to God on our own merits. A lot of folks are trying to do that. And, and when they do, they're making great mistakes. Our time is gone, and I'll not get into the 21st chapter because it's a lesson in itself. And I want to get down. We'll probably take a lesson and get down to... I keep saying this. But anyway, when we get to the 24th, then we'll... When we get to the 24th chapter, these next ones are judgments. We'll be dealing with individually and pointing out some things as we go about them. But this is such a rich part, I hate to just really rush over it. But when we get to 25th chapter, everybody, look at Linda. She just grinned and she knows, she knows good and well I'm not going to do this. I'm going to try. But anyway, when we get to 25th chapter, I do want to give you a summary of the things, the materials of the tabernacle and the main things about the tabernacle which are so meaningful and so dear to us. About the gate and the door and, and all of these things and the, the veil and the various... Uh, pieces of furniture from the brazen altar and the brazen laver and then the golden candlestick and the table of showbread and the altar of incense and 